This is The Guardian. Today, following the money, why it matters who owns England's water supply. Ilkley is a really beautiful town um, on the edge of the Yorkshire Dales. So we've got rolling hillsides, um, really fantastic outdoors areas, and the river runs right through the middle of the town. So people come from all over and in the summer really enjoy being in beautiful countryside. Becky Morby lives in Ilkley, a town just south of York, built around a waterway. It's an old Victorian spa town. People came here to take the waters. So, of course, the river has been a, sort of the lifeblood of the town in many, many ways. Uh, and so there was a time, of course, when the river was phenomenally clean and beautiful. But a few years ago, Becky and other local residents and swimmers started noticing a change. And it was firstly the fishermen very concerned about the water quality in terms of what they were seeing in wildlife in the river itself. The sort of sediment in the river was beginning to build up. Things began to get worse. And then people walking by the river were getting more and more concerned about the amount of sewage that was being discharged into the river. And you could see it, you know, ducks head there. The, the river becomes a sort of murky brown sludge. And it was just so visible and becoming more and more frequent. And at the same time, of course, people were noticing that their families, their children, if they were swimming or paddling or playing, this isn't just about open water swimmers, let's be absolutely clear. In the summer here in Ilkley, we have one and a half thousand people down by that river enjoying it with their kids. So they're literally just paddling and playing and they've got a few inflatables and cooling off. Well, here, the local kids, because we have so many tourists in the middle of the town, go downstream a bit. And of course, people are saying, well, our kids are getting sick. And so you were seeing human waste, solid waste in the pebbles along with things that people put down their toilets, you know, um, sanitary towels and that type of thing, and a lot of toilet paper. Water companies say this is a last resort when there's heavy rainfall and reserves fill up. But Becky says that's not the case at all. Sewage was present much more often. The amount of days in the year that raw sewage was being discharged into the river was amounting to a third of the year, not for the whole day, but during a third of the year, in those days, there is raw sewage discharged into the river. What Becky is describing in the River Wharf is evidence of catastrophe in England and Wales's water supply. Our rivers are currently open sewers, and we had no idea, the public had no idea. And water companies, we pay our bills in good faith for you to treat our sewage. And if you can't do it, then be open and honest about that. From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Nikbal. Today in Focus, what's gone wrong with England's water? Sandra Laville, you're an environment correspondent for The Guardian, focusing on the national water industry. Can you tell me why and when you began investigating water? Well, it was when I became an environment correspondent, I came across a figure that only 14% of English rivers were in a good biological and chemical state. And it just seemed really stark to me that 14, 1, 4%, it didn't seem very many. And I started to look into this. Um, and I swim in rivers quite regularly. So it was something that was quite close to my heart about why they weren't healthy. 
And I eventually had a briefing from officials at the Environment Agency about a number of matters. And I, at the end of the conversation, I brought up this figure about why is it that only 14% of our rivers are in a good state? I thought they'd be shocked, but they were rather blasé about it, actually. So before we get into quite how grim some of our rivers and reservoirs now are, where should we start if we want to understand how we've ended up here? Well, the, the most important point for England's water industry is when it was privatised in 1989 as one of the last privatisations that Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister, Conservative Prime Minister, brought in. Um, so that was handing over wholesale to various private companies our public water system. I would say that was a sort of landmark moment. All this has been made possible by the national revival which we have carried through. And everyone in this hall and millions outside it can claim a share in that revival. What did privatisation look like at the beginning? What did it mean for the water industry? So from the beginning, privatisation effectively took the public water industry, our water that comes out of our taps and the water we flush away into the toilets and hope to be treated um, in a modern, efficient way. That, they handed that to, and handed is the right word, to private companies and the government wrote off £5 billion of debts and gave the companies a £1.5 billion green dowry, a gift of money, and then they handed them our water. So it was a really significant moment and actually one that hasn't really happened in many other countries in the world. I think we're one of two countries in the world that has privatised water. Yes, I think it's us in Chile that have privatised water. And as you say, the idea was part of Margaret Thatcher's huge revolution in the 1980s that changed much of what was publicly owned over to the free market. And the plan was that rather than spend public money upgrading and maintaining the supply of water you could get the private sector to fund it all and, in return, allow them to run it for a profit. So how has that led to what we're seeing now? Tons of sewage being dumped into England's rivers. Well, I mean, I suppose, to answer that question, you have to look at the level of investment that the private companies might have made. They argue they have invested enough. Um, critics would argue that they haven't because we're seeing the use of storm overflows to discharge raw sewage into rivers and seas on a regular basis nowadays, where actually the law says, an EU-derived law, says that you should only release raw sewage into rivers and seas and on, in extreme, extraordinary circumstances, like after extreme rainfall. The 21st of October 2021, and an outflow pipe on the south coast of England pumps hour after hour of untreated sewage into a picturesque harbour just one of many similar instances that have appalled swimmers, water sports enthusiasts, fishers and environmentalists. Currently we are seeing the routine use of storm overflows to wash away wastewater, so water from the toilet, water from the washing machines, which should be stored and treated to wash it away into rivers. The argument from critics is that this is because of a lack of investment in treatment plants, in pipes... Sewage dumps are a vestige of our Victorian sewage system, where rainwater and wastewater are released together when the system gets too full. Southern Water alone has done it nearly 3,000 times since July. Private companies over the last 33 years just haven't addressed this problem. The significant case last year was of Southern Water, which was fined £90 million for releasing billions of litres of raw sewage into 
protected marine waters in Kent and Hampshire. Now, the details of that case showed infrastructure in quite an extraordinary state in terms of crumbling infrastructure. You had diaries of officials running the waterworks, if you like, talking about rainfall causing sort of panic stations and having to pump sewage out into the sea. So that's a really detailed analysis of the state of the infrastructure 30 years after privatisation that was exhibited in that court case. While raking in money from bill payers, Southern Water deliberately misreported its sewage treatment. As some bosses took home bonuses, it failed to invest in equipment. And Sandra, it is worth saying at this point that Scotland's water remains largely in public ownership. So it is just England and Wales we're discussing here. But it wasn't as if the whole supply was handed over to just one company, was it? Can you explain the system we've ended up with in this country? So our water is divided into regions. So you have Anglian water in the eastern half of the country, southwest water for Devon and Cornwall and parts of Dorset, southern water for Hampshire and Kent, Thames water for the southeast, and up to the north you have United Utilities and Northumbria water. So it's divided into regions and they have customers who pay the bills for their water, for their drinking water and for their sewerage facilities. That's how the division of the privatised industries was made up. So these companies are all monopolies. They run a public utility, but they're monopolies. There's no competition because they have the the contract sort of almost in perpetuity, actually. There's a 25-year termination clause on all of their contracts. So it's very hard for a, a government to terminate these contracts, unlike the rail industry, actually, where it's much easier. And so... They are in perpetuity running a monopoly. Now, the government might say that the reason to award long contracts and allow these companies to run effectively mini monopolies is that it provides them with the confidence to be able to invest for the long term. But when you looked a bit closer at how these firms were being run, what did you find? So what we discovered, we looked at 100 shareholders of the 15 water companies and we discovered that more than 70% of them, of the shareholders were foreign companies, investment companies, private equity firms, some businesses based in offshore in places like the Cayman Islands, Bermuda and pension funds, international pension funds. So from the the advert, if you like, the privatisation that Margaret Thatcher introduced in 1989 was a promise to the people that they would all be H2 owners, water owners, individual shareholders in our water. It's no good turning on the waterworks after Wednesday. Register by then, or you'll miss out on the extras you could get if you become an H2 owner. To register for incentives and a prospectus in the water share office, call 0272 272 272 no later than Wednesday. But in fact, 33 years on, we see that the, that the water is being controlled by, you know, far afield international investment funds, ec- private equity, most of whom are driven by a profit motive rather than a motive to create an, a sustainable and s- safe, if you like, company that looks after a public utility. I mean, people might have started to get used to the idea of what we think of as public assets being owned in tax havens. It doesn't make it any less shocking. But how does the overseas ownership actually break down? So America has the strongest foothold in English water companies. 
owning about 17, 17% overall. And then you have Canadian and Australian companies as the second and third biggest overall investors. So, uh, you know, people will have heard of BlackRock, the US investment firm that has stakes in Southwest Water, Seven Trent, United Utilities. Then you look across to Australia, where Macquarie, an Australian investment firm, moved in last year with a billion pound injection of cash to take over majority control of Southern Water. Southern Water is ordered to pay £123 million to its customers and a £3 million fine, meaning each household gets a rebate of around £61, spread over the next four years. And Asia is a very strong owner of our water. So Northumbrian Water is owned by Hong Kong's richest man. And then in Wessex, that's owned by um, YTL, which is a Malaysian company who owns Wessex Water. So you've got global control and ownership throughout the water industry. And for the shareholders at least, is this a good business to be invested in? So over the last 33 years, we've discovered up to 2022 that the nine main water and sewerage companies in England have paid out 65.9 billion in dividends to shareholders. Often these are dividends to their own parent companies because of the structure, the opaque structure of these companies. So that's 65.9 billion, which hasn't gone into the company's investment, it hasn't gone into infrastructure, and wouldn't be there if you have a if you had a nationalised industry. At the same time, these companies have run up enormous debts. It's called gearing. So they're running very high levels of debt in total for those nine companies, 56 billion pounds in debt. But the water companies cannot escape their central share of the blame. <clears throat> Their failure to invest sufficiently in reducing these outflows has come at the same time as they have paid eye-watering sums in pay and bonuses to their senior executives. It's hard to to say what the debt's been taken on to pay. We don't know whether it's a direct link to dividends. There are some academics who argue the debt is taken on to directly fund dividends. But what we do know is when the industry was privatised, it had zero debt. It now has debt to the tune of 56.9 billion and dividend payments 65.9 billion. Water's a good investment. It's a monopoly. There's no competition. It's a good place to put your money. And that's what globally investors have seen. You know, it's it's not, it's also a public utility, which means, you know, the privatised industry gets the profit. The public sector has to deal with any catastrophe. You know, if, if one of these companies is near to collapse, the the government's going to step in because we have to have clean water. So in terms of an investment portfolio, it's a very, it's quite a safe bet, which is why so many pension funds and private equity firms have moved in. And it's made some people a lot of money. As you said, pollution of our waterways with untreated sewage has been happening for some time. But in the last few months, it's really caught the public's attention. What's been the reaction to your reporting on this? So I think The Guardian first started reporting this in 2020 when we laid out for the first time the scale of the use of storm overflows for for really releasing sewage from households and just washing it away, almost like washing it into the rivers to hide it. It, it, Nobody really knew, nobody had, had identified it. We managed to expose it through using environmental information requests, which are a type of freedom of information request. So we got details from each water company on how many hours and incidents of raw sewage was being discharged into rivers. 
in 2020. And, and that was two years ago. Now, that's, it's been a sort of slow burn. Our reporting led to water companies actually, and the Environment Agency, publishing these as a matter of course per every year. And this is where we've had figures like in 2021, 400,000 incidents over more than 3 million hours. But those figures really came about from Guardian reporting, opening the door to what's really happening. It's taken a, a longer time for the wider public, I think, to grasp what's happening. There have always been campaign groups, grassroots organisations. Surfers Against Sewage has been campaigning on cleaning up our seas and rivers. And those kind of grassroots groups were already on top of this. But I think it's become a mainstream issue over the last year, really, as... Um, since lockdown, people using the water much more. And you actually had councils putting up signs saying, don't swim here. It becomes very tangible and visible what's happening to our rivers and seas. And, and there has been a growing anger about it. So this is now an issue that every political party is focusing on and, and probably will be in their manifestos. It's become a mainstream political issue about the use of rivers and seas to wash away our sewage. Have you had any signs from government about whether it's starting to take the issue more seriously? Well, government is taking the issue seriously. I mean, they've come up with a £56 billion investment programme that they're ordering water companies to, to sort out the release of raw sewage. Well, this is just one of the many outlets where raw sewage is, is pumped out. Floating sewage, raw, raw sewage, um, and a, a clear difference in the shades of the water as well. So closer to the shoreline, it's just murky, filthy, and it stinks, and flies actually flying above the surface of the water as well, where the sewage is. Critics argue that this is, is, is too little and too late because their target is for, to end, end the release of sewage from storm overflows by 2050, Obviously, that's a long time in the future, and they say we need much more urgent action much sooner. Coming up, could water be taken back into public ownership? Sandra, what you've been telling me is a kind of horror story. It's about an industry that is vital to this country, vital to the well-being of all of us, being run with horrendous sounding consequences and seemingly no real accountability. Is there any way out of this situation? And what would it take? I think investment is what's required. I think imaginative solutions, including nature-based solutions and more storage facilities so that you don't get this water runoff. When there's heavy rainfall, you have runoff from the roads, runoff from people's hard backyards the where they've concreted over gardens. So we're getting much more surface water, which obviously fills up the storage facilities of water companies, and then they have to use the storm overflow. So we need investment in storage, in nature-based solutions. Many people would argue we need to separate out the two water systems. So we need to have our, our wastewater and our drinking water separated. They're currently combined. That's a huge undertaking, but it it is possible. So Professor Dieter Helm, who's a, an economist, who's advised on privatisation in the past, he thinks we can do this in regions. When you dig up a road for a gas main, you can then se start separating out the pipework. Now, it's a large, large task, but arguably the private companies have had 33 years and not done it. And, and going forward, it might be the only solution about separating out 
the drinking water from the wastewater because actually in terms of the environment we use treated drinking water to flush down our toilets as someone said to me it's like using evian to flush your toilets we should be using gray water for that side of our water system and the treated water for just for us to drink and what about the idea of returning to public ownership of water is there a realistic route to that Yes, there is a realistic route to renationalisation. We had in 2008, in the financial crisis, we had the nationalisation of of Northern Rock, which was done with an act of parliament, and the shareholders were paid zero for their shares. And it was done to save the economy, to help save the economy. Um, So yes, there is a realistic route. Um, You can nationalise an industry with an act of parliament, and according to Some UK law, I say some because it will be argued in court, shareholders do not have a general right to compensation. This was again proved in the Northern Rock case. Thousands of Northern Rock savers have queued for hours at branches to empty their accounts. Many more have withdrawn cash via the internet. Despite reassurances from the bank over the safety of their savings, customers have now taken out well over a billion pounds. Taxpayers have the right to know what their total exposure is under the Prime Minister's latest plan for Northern Rock. Because let us be clear, this is as much a rescue package for his reputation. So if the bonds aren't paid back, and if Northern Rock fails to meet its obligations, what is the total exposure? How much? In 2012, the um, shareholders tried to take the government to court to argue that they shouldn't have been paid zero compensation, they should have been paid for their shares. Now, they took that to the High Court, the Appeal Court and the European Court of Human Rights and they lost on every count uh, in each court. And the court judgments argued that shareholders do not have a general right to compensation because a government can act in the public interest in terms of societal needs. And if that can be argued and, and is deemed to be the case, that the government can pay whatever they feel right at the time. And what would you say to someone who says, I don't swim in rivers, I don't surf, why does it matter to me? Well, I mean, I think you say it doesn't use the rivers, but um, the rivers and the seas are part of our environment. Whether you are an environmentalist or not, we have had droughts this summer. Where does the water come from that we turn on our taps and receive? It comes from rivers, you know, it comes from, water is abstracted from rivers. And if you have a company that has sold off its um, storage facilities shut down its reservoirs to sell the land, then that river is going to be exploited much more than it would have to be. So it's all connected. And I think think we're beginning to realise in this country that with climate change, we can't always turn on our tap and have drinking water. It's not always going to be there. And I think the droughts are raising awareness of this. We've always been used to just having clean water whenever we want it. Now, that is something that this summer with hosepipe bans, people began to realise it's not an endless an endless facility that we can have. We have to look after it. So we have to look after our rivers in order for them to keep providing us with the water that we drink in drought. We have to look after our environment for our well-being as well. So I think whether you swim in a river or not, the idea of all our rivers being deeply polluted by chemical and sewage pollution, which is, is what is the case. There is not one river in this in England that has passed required tests for chemical pollution and biological pollution. And to, I think we do need to realise that water is not an infinite resource. Sandra, looking back at the past two years of your investigation into the water industry, what have you come away thinking? Um, 
what have I come away thinking? I mean, in, to a certain extent, private companies who are designed, we live in a capitalist society. It's not really a surprise that capitalist companies uh, are, are exploiting every loophole in regulation to pay as much money to their investors as possible. And many of their shareholders, as I said, are parent companies to themselves. So I suppose the shock is, in a sense, that the regulation over these last 30 years has been so poor and how much, I think, the regulator off what has been captured by the industry so that it doesn't regulate. You know, 10 years ago, the regulator allowed water companies to self-test for pollution. So it's water companies who test if a waterway is polluted or if there's been a sewage discharge that's polluted a river. And it's water companies who then report that to the Environment Agency. Now, that was handing them the keys to to the control of, of, of polluting the waterways and then, and then regulating. And I think that was a, a terrible mistake. And that was a shock. And it's a shock that that's continuing to, to go on today. Sandra, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. In response to our reporting, water companies said the industry was investing record amounts of private money into the sector. Yorkshire, Southern and Thames said they have not paid dividends for seven, five and five years respectively. Yorkshire said it was not expecting to pay dividends during its five-year business plan period to 2025. A Yorkshire Water spokesperson said, We will have invested £13 million in Ilkley and the areas upstream. In the coming weeks, we will be laying a new sewer in the town and we are trialling a smart wastewater network in the area. You can find the responses from water companies in full on our website and we will put a link on the podcast page. And that is it for today. The producer was Lucy Hoff. Sound design was by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>